Well everybody, what's the crack and welcome back to episode number 20. Yes, you're hearing me right, episode 20 of the Inline G Flute Podcast with me, your host, motherfucking Inline G. We are in a celebratory mood. We have got all the way to episode 20. I read today that 90% of podcasts will stop after three episodes. And of the 10% of podcasts remaining, only 10% of that will get past or to episode 20. That means officially we are in the top 1% of podcasts in the world through pure process of elimination. Slant to the lap, boys. It's a delicious beer. It's like Lidl. It's Lidl's version of Corona. Am I allowed to say that in that accent? Is that a hate crime? Anyway, uh, it's nothing too special this week, to be totally honest. I know it is a landmark episode getting to number 20, and I'm very happy with that. But there are big things coming up in this podcast. I asked you guys last week if you would like to see more interviews, if the online interview format worked. You all agreed. So there are more guests coming on very soon. I contacted three different people in the space of a day. Who have wanted to get in this podcast for a very long time. Two of them have already agreed, and the third one hasn't replied yet. But I think I shall twist their arm. And if not, I've got a whole list of people I want to get on. And that'll all be happening very soon. I'm already working on the scripts for that. I've been in contact. Oh, you guys are gonna be spoiled. So, and also, actually, I promised you guys last week I'd had an episode on sexy flute players written. And that will be here eventually. That will come. No fun intended. Um, but for the moment. I'm still sort of organising my thoughts on that one, putting it all together. It's a lot more nuanced and, what's the correct term for that? Nuanced and brilliant, <laughs> that's what it's right, uh, than you would imagine. So it's taken a little bit of time, that one. But here, I had a crazy weekend. I'm going to tell you why I have got this episode. Because this episode today has ruled itself and it feels very special for episode number 20. So at the weekend there, first of all, it was the 11th of November, which in fair Cologne city, where I live in Germany, 11-11 is the start of carnival season. So I celebrated carnival. I was out drinking from 7.30am, which is weirdly normal here. Man, when the Germans do it, they they really, they don't fuck around. Even for me, as a hardened Irishman, that was tough going on Saturday. So we, yeah. And then Sunday, I got up early, had to go to work, and then I stayed for the match. Bayer Leverkusen, by the way, 17 games this season, 16 wins. The one game that we did win was a 2-2 win, or 2-2 draw away to Bayern Munich. We're top of the league, baby. We're the best scoring team in Europe. Thus this beautiful jersey, which is not a fake. This is an original. The good shit. So I went to that match anyway, and then I went afterwards to the Wee Supporters Bar down the road in Everkosen to meet a few friends. I said, I'll have one beer, and I really meant it. I'll have one beer, and then I have to go. And I had a little bit more than one beer. I got carried away. We're top of the league, man. So I chatted with a lot of people there. Football fans, it was brilliant. You know, We started singing a bit of Spice Girls. We got these shots that were... Shaped like light bulbs and they were peppermint flavour. They were from East Germany. It was wild. It was wild. And then on the way home I left there about 10, 30, 11. On the train home a friend of mine who is currently on tour in Germany with a very famous British orchestra asked if I wanted to go meet for a pint. So I went and met said friend in Cologne for a pint. And we had a bit of a chat. And then I met members of this very famous British orchestra. And then I stayed late and then I walked home. Because it was so late that I couldn't get the... Uh, the train so i had to walk home and then on the way home i typed this episode out on my phone well i say typed i threw a few bullet points into my notes app like i'm not i'm not that coherent but i read it the next day and it, it made a lot of sense and then i got a really good kebab a really good kebab so essentially this podcast the script has been fueled by kebabs and peppermint schnapps 
as usual. But the juxtaposition of the day is what sort of fueled this episode. So the meeting up with friends at the football, going to a football supporters club bar. Um, I think it's fair to say that's quite a working class thing to do and a very working class town in Leverkusen to then go in to meet members of a very famous British orchestra and that's much more upper class. It got me thinking about the class system and more specifically, where does classical music fit into the class system? And then when I was walking home, something clicked, man. The brain, the, the drunk brain, the schnapps kicked in and I had what I thought was a super hot take and a super important reason for why classical music has the place it does within the class of the social class system i thought i was the first person to think of this until i googled it today to do more research and apparently it's been quite known within sociological circles for quite a while but for me it was a hot take and for you it might be a hot take and you might not know this so that's where we're going to get on so we got a lot in today's episode and then we're going to finish actually the episode by talking about some possible solutions to what's going on with classical music status in the social class system and where we can go with it but before we go anywhere we're going to talk about what the social class system is because i need to have a bit of clarification for that for everybody now before we start it is important to say my own background in case there's any bias bias on this podcast <laughs> never this is nothing but pure factuality and academic level research anyone who knows this podcast knows you shouldn't you shouldn't take anything i say as factual but anyway, before we start, so I am, I'm working class, okay, I come from a very working class background, I come from a normal family background, when I grew up I had two parents that were working in service industry jobs, so especially as I was growing up I was working class. Things might be a little bit different now, my family situation has changed since then, but when I was growing up, until I was an adult, we were working class. I'm Belfast, or more specifically Lisburn, which is my hometown in the north of Ireland, very proud working class towns, very strong industrial heritage. They built the Titanic. Yeah, we we built it, the English sunk it. So it's very common for us to be working class. It's not an unusual thing in Belfast at all. So anyway, when I was writing this episode, I want to give a quick summary of what the social class system is. Because we all know what it is, the social class system and the classes within it and blah, blah, blah. But I was quite surprised to find out how different the UK and Ireland social class systems are with comparison to the USA ones. And because most of the audience on this podcast are on the other side of the big pond, I thought we'd chat about that. Set up some parameters first. Get this all organised. So, if you're not from the UK or Ireland or the USA strap in you're in for a hell of a ride today maybe at the end you can vote for your favorite we'll do tories austerity britain versus donald trump's cowboy america you can vote but anyway let's get into it so the names of the social classes between those two places are the same so there's essentially three social classes within that a couple of subcategories the three social classes are lower class middle class and upper class now, within the lower class, there are two subcategories. There are the underclass and the working class. Within the middle class, there are three subcategories. There are the lower middle class, the middle class, and the upper middle class. And then finally, within the upper class, there is just the upper class. That is six classes all together. Let's quickly rifle through the definitions of this and maybe try to work out where you belong in this list. Uh, so we'll go from the top, the upper class. This is aristocracy or titled nobility. So if you're in the UK, you're talking your sirs, your inherited sirs, dames, peers of the realm, etc., etc. We're also talking extremely wealthy, wealthy business owners, entrepreneurs, and very high-ranking professionals. We're talking incredibly successful lawyers, top executives of companies, 
people that own their own cabinet we're talking top of the top creme de la creme of very specialized fields next we have the upper middle class high level professionals normally doctors lawyers psychologists senior managers that kind of thing very successful within their fields as well successful business owners too um and usually these people will have a significant cultural and educational capital so they've probably got phds we're talking about kind of level of education um yeah very well to do people not a bad social class to be in at all then we have the middle class bang in the middle third one down from the top white collar workers we're talking office professionals and managers educated individuals in various professions small business owners entrepreneurs probably talking people with a master's degree or something close to it in terms of education then we have the lower middle class skilled workers and tradespeople, low level lower level office workers those are the moderate income and educational attainment so a degree probably people with a degree um yeah moderate income can afford maybe two cars one car second car maybe on its way that kind of level of income then we have the working class the one below the bottom so the working class is manual labor factory workers service industry workers you're talking people that work in cafes people that work in manual labor jobs people that work as bartenders that kind of thing normal less skilled occupations that's yeah i'm saying that in quotation marks because like i said there for example bartender there's a difference between someone who works in like a normal local pub and like a mixologist in a hipster bar but anyway less skilled occupations lower income and then below that at the sixth class we have the underclass now the underclass we're on the we're on the edges of society here people that are nearly about to drop off the grid individuals with extreme poverty or poverty in general um, and social exclusion often characterized by unemployment or very low paying unstable jobs we're talking below minimum wage and limited extremely limited access to education and other resources so again we're talking people that are nearly about to drop off the social grid so there's your six classes in the social class system now they're very different they are missing are they very good act they're very good definitions but they are missing the very important cultural factors which is where we're going to talk about later because different classes have different uh, cultural ideologies that do help define them and classical music is one of those things and we'll be looking at that later but a very quick note on what differs between the usa social classes and the uk slash irish social classes I say UK and Ireland, they're the same. The social classes are identical in the UK and Ireland. For, yeah, for all intents and purposes. So anyway, the differences between the US and the UK and Ireland. First of all, the terminology. They do use terms in the USA, from what I understand. They do say, you know, someone's lower middle class or upper class or et cetera, et cetera. But the definitions don't seem to be as rigid and they don't seem to be as important as they are in the UK. Also leading into that, fluidity. So the US is much more individual as a country. Individualism is much more significant in the US. And they are very strongly of the belief that someone can move between the classes purely based on education, career success, and most importantly, hard work. Americans are of the strong belief that you work hard enough, you can climb up through the classes. The UK does not believe that. Essentially, you're, in, you're assigned a social class through your circumstance when you're born, and you're kind of stuck in it and it's very hard to be pigeonholed out of it regardless of success next one is accent the accent you speak with in the uk your accent is directly linked to your class or at least to the perception of what class you're from so what i mean for that uh, by example my accent for example the beautiful belfast accent I actually voted 
sexiest accent in the world thank you very much jamie dornan um oh sorry not my beer there um it's it's an accent that is considered working class now this actually isn't my real accent i soften my accent a lot for this podcast because i've had a lot of people tell me they couldn't understand me um even when i was home recently my brother said oh you say par or you don't say par you say power you sound like a wanker i have to soften the accent but this is still even the accent i'm doing now is still a working class accent it would be it would be perceived to be a working class accent in the usa although there is accents and there is difference in accents it doesn't seem to have this this uh like national scale like this measurement that's strictly attached to your accent one in the uk it's very very strongly linked to your accent Uh, inherited wealth is another thing so in the uk it's a big thing in the class system of your inherited wealth how much money you get from your family and how much it's brought in the us although it is important it puts a bigger emphasis on the self-made millionaire you know the man who climbs up through the ranks and does it himself that's very american the uk it's more about inherited wealth and also america is a relatively new country so they don't have as much wealth to inherit you know there's british families out there that have had inherited wealth for hundreds and hundreds of years not just wealth but also assets and etc etc so that's more um important in the uk and finally well not finally healthcare actually is one this is a bizarre one to even talk about so the uk has the nhs the national health system everyone is insured everyone gets the exact same level of treatment everyone in the uk it is totally 100 percent free you don't even have a card if you want to go to the doctor in the uk or the hospital you just walk in you don't have to have a card you don't have to prove anything you don't bring a credit card or money with you to the hospital what the fuck it's all 100 free so we know that's not the case in america actually the uk the u.s healthcare system is a fucking mess and it is the number one reason why i think america is such a fucking hole of a country but it is therefore linked to class one in the uk it's not we don't have conversations about the healthcare system in the uk very often unless it's like a shared complaint a shared experience that we've had or a shared complaint about the system itself but in the us you will have more conversations about it and you'll be careful about what you say because it will immediately show your income level the quality of healthcare you have or potentially lack of healthcare you have immediately indicates how much money you make and therefore your class system not the case in the uk obviously not it's insane that you have to pay for healthcare but anyway and last topic which i was saying fuck all about i will not be commenting on this but i will point it out race america as we all know is obsessed with race and often for very very good legitimate reasons and although it does play a a huge role in the uk class system not as much as the americans so yeah we know how much the americans are obsessed with race i will leave it there i am not touching that hot potato you think I'm stupid enough to talk about race? Another white guy on the internet drinking a beer talking about race? Race? Not a chance. So anyway, the UK and the US have very different ideas about the social class system. So please take all that into consideration as we shoot on into what role does classical music play and where does it fit in the class system? So, beer's lovely. Um, where does classical music fit in the class system? at the top done that's it the higher up you are on the class system the more you'll be exposed to classical music as simple as that don't listen to anyone who makes an argument against this 
classical music is still by and large for the rich um there that doesn't mean that there isn't great initiatives to make it more accessible and god bless the people that do there are some wonderful projects out there in different countries and different places to make classical music more accessible but at the end of the day it still is almost exclusively reserved for the upper class um and there is a few reasons why so let's get into them before we get on to my reason my hot take that wasn't that hot so a couple of reasons why is classical music preserved for the upper classes number one historical patronage so rich people's Rich people paid composers to write music, historically, when the composers were living a couple of hundred years ago. And, to be honest, this is still kind of the case. Very rich people, patrons, are responsible for a lot of the money within the classical music industry. If you don't believe me, go to any major orchestra's website, go check out their list of donors, it'll be on there somewhere, and see what names pop up. Next, venues. Number two, venues. Concert halls and opera houses are they're elitist as fuck, okay? The tickets are expensive as shit, the drinks are expensive as shit, and they're usually shite. I can never get a sex in the beach at the symphony. It's ridiculous. And to be honest, most people without major money will not be familiar with these venues. Other music forms, for example, are played in venues that are multi-purpose. So, for example, like certain music venues will also have meetings or concerts or shows different types of music even arenas even big arena tours they'll be multi-purpose so most people will have went to these areas of these venues at some point in their life for something they'll use it quite a lot classical venues aren't they're almost exclusively for classical music or opera which means if you're not going to those things for whatever reasons you're not exposed to these places they are very ornate they're very decorative they're very traditional they're very expensive and yeah they're elitist essentially these concert halls i love them but they are latest and the only time classical music is in not the only time but the only common time that classical music is in a different venue is in a church which i fucking hate i hate going to church for anything i hate church so fuck concerts and churches i'd honestly rather take my chances of seeing a concert out in the street than doing it in a, cur- a church that is not multi-purpose either and that is not appealable to a working class family to go to a church for anything apart from christenings or weddings or funerals next reason concert attire people dress like dicks at the symphony okay the fellows are like the wee penguins and the girls are like you know those wee women used to get in the 90s that you would set on top of toilet roll holders <laughs> that's what the people look like at symphony orchestra concerts they look fucking ridiculous for a night out and for a working class person you just don't have clothes like that you don't own them. You wouldn't spend that money on them either for one thing. You might have one suit that you wear at weddings. But that's it. And you're not going to pay for them for the concert. And you're not going to wear it to go to a night out. You want to wear what's comfortable and what's cool. Not every, Again, this is not everyone. But it is the vast majority of classical music. Especially at the higher end. It's still quite daunting in what you have to wear. And it's very formal concert attire for the audience. And it's fucking stupid in my opinion. But anyway. Education. This is probably the most important one, to be totally honest. Learning to play an instrument costs a fucking fortune. Lessons, books, instruments, courses, trips, auditions, instruments getting broken, everything. Concert clothes. I've talked about this before, but the average family, especially at the minute, cannot afford it. The average working class family cannot afford it. It is ridiculous. And there is a cost of living crisis. People are struggling for money. You cannot afford to give your cat, your kid a proper classical music education. 
if you're working class. It's way too expensive. I know. I'm a teacher. I know how expensive it is. Like, I I will do an episode on this, but all my students, all the warm-up books they use, I write my own warm-ups so I can give them to my students for free. I don't like my students paying for any books. I always do, like, a little fun piece for my students, which they can work towards over a three to four month period on the site it can be anything i will transcribe it for them in my handwriting that way they don't have to pay for it they have to save money wherever they can i will do the repairs for free for my students because most of them cannot afford it and to get them to pay for everything it's too much so anyway there's a lot of reasons but about why classical music belongs to the upper class or is attached to the upper class in so many ways but they all essentially are all these ones so far essentially boil down to money and that's not a surprise and I said, there are great efforts to make classical music more accessible. But they have a very long way to go. A very long way to go, man. In comparison to how other musical genres are getting on at the minute with accessibility and promotion, classical music has fallen way behind to any other music genre or any other major music genre. But anyway, there is a reason for classical music's place that everyone forgets but not me i remember this i didn't remember it i thought i had invented this i i was walking home the other night at half two fucking delighted with myself i thought hey man i'm the smartest man in the world i made a note in my phone about this thinking you're on to something brilliant there it was my hot take i was so clever now it turns out it wasn't that hot at all but before we do that quickly you know the score on this podcast um what am i drinking i've got a what's it called camaro cerveza extra it's Lidl the cheap German supermarkets answer to Corona um yeah this podcast is free the podcast will always be free there are no plans to have a Patreon there will never be a Patreon there will never be a point in this podcast where you will pay to get more content than everybody else that will just not happen everyone gets all the content and they all get it for free but if you can afford to donate a small amount of money towards this podcast, it helps a lot, especially recently because I've taken on a lot more work. The money really helps. So my recommendation in the description of this podcast, wherever you're listening to it or watching it, there's a link to a PayPal. You can go in there. My recommendation is throw me whatever a Dr. Pepper costs in your country, probably three quid or three euro or three dollars if you enjoy the episode. I make four of these a month, so you get at least four 40-minute episodes per month of content. If you're watching all that, great. Go and throw me that once a month or twice a month. It will help pay to keep the lights on around here. It means I can afford to decline work, which is a fucking pleasure to dedicate more time to this podcast. And that is the goal overall, is to be able to dedicate enough time to this that I can decline more work. But it's very appreciated. The people who have paid already, especially, yeah, thank you so much. I got a few more today and it makes me so happy and so appreciative and it gives me the motivation to come and make more episodes like this. So thank you so much. In the current um, economic climate, to give your money, your very hard-earned money towards a guy on the internet is incredibly appreciated. Really, I nearly cry every time I get money. So thank you very much for that. So, slancha guys, 20 episodes in. Right. Oh, that is a very nice beer. I always find, like, these Mexican beers taste a bit like weed. Not that I would ever know what weed tastes like, but I've never eaten weed, but, you know, the smell of weed, it always tastes like that to me. Again, not that I would know. I wouldn't touch the stuff. 
Um, I actually don't. But anyway, my big hot take. Okay, the thing I realised at three o'clock in the morning on Sunday, lubed up with peppermint snaps and a cheap kebab. Actually, it wasn't a cheap kebab. It was an unbelievable kebab. Seven euro, but it was so good. Anyway, what have I got typed here? So yeah, actually, before we get into that, not before, but part of it, um, I was going to discuss here all the different circumstances that can change your class, certain aspects of culture will always remain with you. So you can change your class as much as you want, but there are certain things that are, you bring from your childhood as part of your class. So then I started to make a list of things that were associated with the working class in terms of culture. So what music and what films and what hobbies do we associate with the working class, and using myself as an example. But then I realized this hot take I have explains it all much more succinctly. Now again, it is not a hot take. I googled it and it's a very accepted thing in sociological circles. But anyway, it was a discovery for me. So here we are, my hot take. Coming close to me here. The further up the class system you are, the more you prefer deferred gratification as opposed to instant gratification. Is that not the smartest thing I've ever... I typed that out myself, man. That's my own words. Fucking genius. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, what is deferred and instant gratification? So deferred deferred gratification is resisting a smaller but more immediate reward in order to receive a bigger one long term. Instant gratification is an instant reward. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say you want to lose a bit of weight. And you think, right, I want to lose a bit of weight. I want to get in shape. Great. And you've decided I'm going to go and limit, limit my calorie intake to therefore lose weight. Happy days. So you're on your diet. Well, diet. You're counting your calories. You've got to the end of the day and you're going, right, I've got 400 calories left for today. You're in the shop and you see the most gorgeous, sexy chocolate cake you've ever seen in your life. And it's a whole one. You can't buy it in a slice. You have to buy a whole one. And tell you what, it's 75% off. It's cheap as chips and it's sitting there and they say, you have to take it. It's going out of date today. Someone has to take this delicious chocolate cake and bring it home and eat the whole thing in one go. You have to. Oh, I've done this many times. This is, not, this is not a hypothetical situation by any stretch of the imagination. So therefore, you can take the cake home and you can eat it and it'll be amazing and we call that instant gratification. You wanted something, you went and got it, you're instantly happy. Instant gratification. But if losing weight was a higher goal and something you really, really wanted to to, to achieve, you would defer eating the cake. So you wouldn't buy the cake. You would leave the cake there and you would sacrifice being happy right now so that you can have a bigger prize further in the future. And we call that deferred gratification. It means you're putting off the good feeling because it's going to be even better if you wait for it. Now, working class people naturally favor instant gratification. Simple as. There's a lot of reasons for that. And yeah. Generally speaking, working class people don't get as much fulfillment from their jobs. They're not really jobs that are part of a career or a career path. There's no ladder to climb. There's no really nowhere to go. It's purely just to earn money to survive. And because of that, you probably have a very limited expendable income. You don't make much money. So instant gratification what do you spend your money on at the end of the week when you finish your working week it's things like nice food it's going for a pint it's going to like a concert maybe you'd save up for for a couple of weeks 
or a couple of months to go to a gig. Um, football matches, sports, these are all examples of it. And they're the things that make life worth living. And I, I was talking about uh, cultural things that you bring with you. I've moved between class systems, I think, myself, and I often wonder where I belong in it right now. But I have those reactions from my working class upbringing very much. So as much as I still, like, I love my life and all the different um, fine arts and classical music and poetry and literature and great cookery and different types of music and big experiences, my instant reaction to myself to reward myself or to feel good is chips or a pint or a football match. And I take that over. I love, for example, red wine. I adore tasting wine. I fucking love it. It's my favorite thing in the world is to go and taste great red wine. But in my head, when I'm celebrating something instantly, I instantly go towards pint. In my head, going to the pub and order a pint of Guinness is a reward. That's a treat and something you earned. And same thing, if I achieve something big and I want to get food, it'll be chips. Now, I mean chips as in, like, for you Americans, fries. Real chips. That never left me. That's what I did as a kid. When we were working class upbringing, we didn't have much money. You lived for a Friday night because you were getting chips for dinner. We lived for it. It was the best thing you could ever have. And I haven't lost that. There's still a huge source of comfort to me, these kind of things. And for me, classical music is the epitome of deferred gratification. It is the absolute epitome. Now, for example, to appreciate classical music, to truly appreciate it, you have to understand it. And it's not easy to understand. It's incredibly complex complex music. And it almost always requires some level of study to truly understand it. So we're talking about a music form that you have to study for potentially years to really understand it. And that is insane in many ways. Years to really get your head around it. I think it's more than worth it. But it is a very, very long time investment. And money investment, like it doesn't take years to appreciate the Spice Girls. Everyone listens to the Spice Girls straight away and they're instantly happy. I played Spice Girls at the, or someone played Spice Girls for me at the supporters bar after the Leverkusen game on Sunday. Man, it doesn't matter if you're a 75-year-old fella who's hard as nails and goes to football matches and looks rough. Play them wannabe, they'll melt. Everyone loves the Spice Girls, man, straight away. And if you don't, you're a lying bastard. Um, But... What am I going to say? The studies themselves for classical music. So to study classical music or to learn an instrument, even within that, there is deferred gratification. Anyone who's learned an instrument for a long period of time, especially has done it to a high level, like went to university or music college with it, you'll probably agree with me when you say when I say 90% of learning an instrument is kind of shit. 10% is amazing, but 90% of it is a pain in the arse. It's practice that you don't want to do. It's boring. It's miserable. You get frustrated. It's being shouted at. It's searching for things that aren't there. It's an incredibly frustrating process because it takes a long time. There's a lot of fine tuning and it's very hard to get where you want to go. And the 10% is like gigging or going to the rehearsal or playing with other people that you want to play with, etc. But it's 10% max of playing an instrument for me is that genuine enjoyment. Again, deferred gratification, that 10% is incredible, but it is deferred. So not only do you have the deferred gratification to enjoy the music by doing the studies, the studies themselves are deferred gratification within it, which means 
because of that it's just not for working class people it's way too much if you think if you're trying to tell working class people to go to an orchestra gig they have to pay for the ticket first of all there's your deferred gratification already you have to take that money that you would have spent on your chips on a friday night put that aside for a couple of weeks to save up for an orchestra ticket but you're also going to have to pay for the clothes because you're going to need them as well you're going to have to do a few years study to really get your head around it properly if you really want to get the most out of it, you're going to have to do all the costs associated with that that we talked about, you know, lessons and instruments, etc., etc. That's a shitload of money to start enjoying a music form, to really appreciate it. And you go, well, do I do all that for years to get that out of it, to potentially get that out of it? Or do I just go and get fish and chips and go to the cinema this weekend? Which sounds a lot better. If you have the time, and more importantly, the money, to be able to defer gratification that long, which the middle class and the upper class do have, then they will get the rewards of it. It's the sad, the sad irony of the whole thing. Like, it's my constant battle in life. I don't know if I want to get fish and chips or to go to a Beethoven concert. I want battered sausages and Beethoven. That's the dream life. Oh, that could be my autobiography novel. Battered sausages and Beethoven, the Gareth Houston story. But anyway, guys, this has been, this has had the air of a quite negative episode. And I don't intend it to be because we are at number 20 here. So I had to, <laughs> I didn't initially have a solution to this, but I found one very quickly when I started thinking about it. So I've got a nice positive note to end this. I don't have a solution to make classical music more accessible to the working class. There are people much smarter than I am, working a lot harder than I am to make that happen. There are success stories out there, just not as much as other music forms. But I don't have another solution. But what I can do is I can tell you what worked for me. What got me from the working class to go on right through to classical music and doing all the things I've done and doing the things I hopefully will do in the future. So first of all, my background was flute bands. Um, the Northern Irish flute band system. There's a podcast episode on it by yours truly. I think it's episode five. It's one of the early episodes, five or six maybe, called Flute Bands of Northern Ireland. Um, go check it out. I'll give you all the background needing flute bands, but they're a very working class thing in Northern Ireland. That's why I got into the instrument. But moving into classical music was essentially it came down to James Galway. So James Galway, the very famous flute player. If you don't know who he is, go and Google it. I assume that you all know, because I'm assuming that everyone listening to this podcast is a flute player, but I keep forgetting it's really not the case. The numbers in this podcast are going fucking high, man. And I get so many friends of mine telling me they're listening to this podcast who are not flute players or not even musicians, and they just listen to it to be supportive. In which case, I absolutely adore you for doing that. That's incredibly sweet of you. But anyway, if you don't know who James Galway is, go Google it. It's for James Galway. So he was from Belfast, became, in my opinion, the greatest flute player of all time, an incredibly successful player, without a doubt the most commercially successful flute player of all time. But he had an almost identical background to me. Belfast, working class, flute bands. And then he went on to achieve all these things. And to be honest, watching him do that was far more valuable than some wanky, English prick coming to school as some part of some orchestra outreach program and tell me how beautiful or how cool Vivaldi was. I mean, fuck off. Anyone with an English accent, I'm not listening to you. You're not cool. Unless you're from the north, but you're not cool. Sorry. I'm, I feel like I'm on a mission to offend everyone in my audience. Um, so listen, here's what I'm trying to say. If you're a classical music, if you're in the classical music, if you're part of the profession, you're in the industry, 
and you're working class as well, please be proud of your roots. Please do not try to hide them. Um, be proud of the things that still make you happy. Be proud of those learned behaviours and cultural things that you've picked up from working class. Don't throw them aside. Show them loud and proud. Do you still love cheap shots and playing Scooter? The band, not the, the form of transport. The band. Um, do you still love that? Tell people you love it. Don't hide it. These are working class things. Do you still love going to football matches and chatting about Top of the Pops for four hours afterwards to a bunch of lads from Manchester? Not that I've ever done that. Be proud of it. Please. Don't be ashamed. It's not the opposite of classical music. The two are never mutually exclusive. You can love everything. You have an appreciation and love for very different areas of your life. I've discovered that recently. I've made my peace with this recently. And it's made me so happy. Even on the weekend there, Sunday night when I was meeting with the orchestra people, there's still a little bit of part, about of me, part of me, sorry, that I'm a little bit ashamed sometimes to, I'm not ashamed, but the instant reaction in my brain goes, you should be ashamed of saying I work with a football team. And it's only in the recent years I'm going, why? It's only to those people. Because I'm like, oh, they're going to look down at me and go, oh, he works in football. Oh, really? Football. You know, and it makes me feel like a dick because I'm like, yeah, well, I'm also a classical musician and quite a good one. And I've had a good career and I'm very happy with it. But I joined football as a part-time job because I adore it. And it made me so happy. And I quit a very prestigious teaching job to take a role in a football stadium because I fucking love football. But I was ashamed to admit that for a long time. And chatting with my classical musician friends, I felt a wee bit ashamed of it for a long time because I felt like very working class and I got that very snobby look and you know or worse you get that total like oh football is it like a wee football team is it, is it going well and you're like well no it's Bayer Leverkusen is one of the biggest football clubs in Europe the best football club in Europe at the moment and there's a lot more money in professional football than there is in classical music as well it's a much bigger industry you know like even the ones that you say like like the ones that pretend they don't know who David Beckham is. I'm like, oh, I think I've heard the name David Beckham. I'm like, I'm not the problem here. If you haven't heard of David Beckham, you're the fucking weird one. Not me, man. Football is like a part of culture. It's a part of life. Yes, it's maybe working class, but it's a massive part of the modern world. I shouldn't be ashamed to be a part of it. And not anymore. So what I'm saying is I've made my peace with that. I've made my peace with the fact that I'm incredibly proud that I love football and that I love beer and that I also... And I have an appreciation for Oasis and all those things that are working class culturally amongst other things but I also love classical music I love fine dining I love wine I love literature I love poetry you can have both and I'm not ashamed to hide it so if you are working class please be proud of it and show it and wear it on your sleeve because you could be an inspiration to someone if I didn't have James Galway I wouldn't have chased it 100% that was the thing that pushed me over the edge more than any outreach program could ever do seeing a guy who looked like me and talked like me and had the same background as me and the same accent and the same money background and played the same instrument and did all that but went and did those things that was it I was like right if he can do it I can do it too no sweat happy days it's not just for the rich English there's space for us so wear it on your sleeve be proud of it come and tell me if you are so anyway there's my happy ending to the class system episode now before I go don't turn off don't turn off I've seen in the, <laughs> I've seen in the numbers the little outros I do at the end, that's when people start switching off. No one's going to talk bollocks for the last three minutes. Don't turn off, right? Stay here. If you're new to the podcast, turn off. If it's your first episode, turn it off. You don't need to hear this. This is for the the old heads. But um, episode 20, guys, listen, thank you. Really hugely thank you. It's been the most 
fulfilling creative thing i've ever done in my life this podcast i fucking love it and it is onwards and upwards from here we're pushing on slowly but surely 20 episodes is a lot but it's a weekly episode so it's only been going for a few months and again this is 100% ran by me there is no external work done by anybody in this podcast i promote it i edit it i do all the production video audio i do all the marketing i do all the graphics thumbnails posters everything is done by myself it is a shit load of work on top of the scripts but i love every single bit of it so thank you for the feedback thank you for subscribing thank you for liking it thank you for telling your friends these are the things that mean so much to me because i can't do it all on my own and i can't pay anyone to do it so when i see like this week more than ever i've seen new people share um share the posts i have on my social media about the podcast just on their story saying this is great go check it out that means more than a donation does to be totally honest getting ears around this podcast and getting eyes on it is all i need and it I will increase the quality and I can tailor what I'm making more to my audience as I know more about you guys. So thank you. Please keep messaging me. Please keep interacting with me. I love the community we're building around this podcast. And when it takes over the world, you guys are coming with me. Um, so yeah, do that. Go and like the podcast. Like it, whatever thing you're listening to now. Can you hit the like button for me? If you haven't subscribed already, please do because we're nearly at 100 subscribers on YouTube. I know that isn't much, but YouTube seems to be a nightmare to promote stuff on my spotify numbers and my apple numbers are much higher youtube plummets so please subscribe on youtube to my youtube channel it helps a lot in this battle against the algorithm and if you're on spotify rate the podcast please throw it a five stars if you're not going to throw it a five stars don't rate it <laughs> please only do it if you give it five stars it's got a perfect record unlike my fucking music studio someone rated me four stars in the music studio my teaching studio here this room on google and i was fucking fuming with it man so like i don't know who this guy is why is he rating me four stars didn't put any description of why he was rating four stars just put a picture up and it was of the fucking supermarket next door so he thinks that this is the supermarket and he's rating me four stars because legal wasn't up to scratch and i wrote to google and they're like no no he's done it right and i'm like he definitely hasn't <laughs> it's a picture of legal and he's rating a small independent music studio he's obviously but no so please don't ruin five star ratings if you're not thinking this podcast is five stars, keep your opinion to yourself. Thank you. It all helps. So listen, um, yeah, I was going to change this podcast every two weeks. I've been saying that for, ever since this podcast has started, I said I'm going to switch to doing it bi-weekly because the amount don't work. But every time I get close to doing that, someone sends me three euro or someone puts me in their status or someone sends me a message or something. Like people reached out over WhatsApp this week, sending me recordings based on last week's episode. Quite a few people did that. When these things happen, I make more episodes. So I will keep making weekly episodes, even if it kills me, as long as you guys are interacting with it. And it's getting out there. So thank you all. And yeah, that's it. That's, that's it. We're done. This must be about 40 minutes long now. Listen, it's Friday, wherever this came out. I think I'm going to a birthday party. I'm going to Jakob's birthday party, if you remember from episode 10. Tomorrow, Saturday, I'm going to another party. I've got a great weekend ahead of me, so I'll be out partying and having a great time i hope you guys are going to have a great weekend if you're listening on the weekend whenever you listen to this if you're not well i hope whatever you're doing you're enjoying it so have a great weekend guys i will see you back here next week well hopefully i think next week will be a guest episode i think i'll be able to organize that in short enough time anyway guys i love you all so much i appreciate you all so much episode 20 slancha oh, it's so